<clears throat> Do you feel like the Def Jam like logo jack the record jacket? Can you identify that immediately? Yes. Maroon. It's iconic, dude. Yeah, with the DJ arm yes. on it. You knew it was gonna be good. Well, I mean, it, it definitely it spoke, right? Like yeah. when it was on something, you sort of trusted it. Yeah. It had credibility. Kind of like how No Limit. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> That's why I bought every record every week for fifty-seven straight weeks. <laughs> As we proceed. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Read a Book Podcast. This is your host, Sean Little. I'm joined by my mellow, my man, Cast One. What up, sir? Hey. It's been a while. Uh, we're not going to spend too much time on talking about how long it's been since we released an episode, but we're excited uh, to bring the latest episode as we proceed in reading the big payback, the history of the business of hip-hop. Uh, today, we're talking album three, The Beatbox. <clears throat> Uh, the subtitle is that Def Jam fosters a revolution in hip hop, art, and commerce. 1984 to 1988. Weren't you born in 84? 83. 83. Yeah, man. Keep forgetting. You're an old are you, man. Are you 85? 84. 84. Yeah. Okay. Matter of months. Matter of months. Man. So this is like, you know, interesting just because it's right when we were born. So this is beginning to get in sort of to an era that we're familiar with, even I though. remember it. Yeah, we were kind of talking, you know, pre production, like. As we got older and into rap, we would look back on a lot of this stuff and be like, oh, yeah. it's kind of corny or it's kind of gimmicky or, and I've even tried to get, you know, get into stuff, you know, in more recent years, maybe saying, oh, I'm older, I'm wiser, I, I understand more now, I'll go back and. Can't. Can't, man. Me neither. I definitely appreciate Run DMC. I definitely appreciate Run DMC and Rakim yeah. and um, Public Enemy. Yeah. But a lot of stuff. I love Beastie Boys. Mm -hmm. Beastie Boys is kind of timeless, I feel like, though. Yes, yeah, see, I There's never really more... got into Beastie Boys. No? But we'll talk more about all these names, you know, as we proceed through side A uh, and side B. So side A uh, gets us going. It's entitled High. And we sort of start with the initial uh, from the ground up of what becomes Def Jam Records. Um, who are you more interested in, Russell Simmons or Rick Rubin? Rick Rubin. Talk about it. I just, uh, I find a lot of similarities between him and I as far as attitude-wise goes. Yeah. Not necessarily upbringing. Yeah. But I just, I've, I think he's fun. He's like a, he's like somebody I would have hung out with. Mm. Um, and it, it just like some of the stuff that he got into, especially in college. Yeah. It's funny to me. He definitely seems like a wild card. He's kind of an asshole. Yeah. <laughs> and I always gravitate towards kind of asshole people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I find them to be funny. Uh -huh. And that's kind of the, you know, through side A, um, there's always this talk about highbrow and lowbrow. Like the art that he yeah. was into it wasn't like middle of the road, everybody can understand it, everybody can get no. it. It's sort of this very intelligent but very outlandish uh yeah, he was like punk, punk rock and hip hop, mm -hmm. which is tight. Yeah, which are two kind of people that I always have gotten along with. Like yeah, the punk rock kids I always, always liked anybody that was kind of away from the norm in high school and stuff was like the kids I liked. Yeah, we'll talk more about that. Right at one twenty-five, there's a couple lines that I underlined: punk and rap groups made songs for the moment. And tossed them away a minute later because there was always something newer, better, and fresher. Uh, both were created by near amateurs for the sheer fun of it. In both punk and rap, if it sounded raw, it was authentic. The worse it was, the better. That's you know what's funny is like how I any time that I talk about music nowadays and I'm kind of like harking back to the good times. Mm -hmm. I'm always like music's so disposable now. Yeah, it's fast food. Sure, and. I'm, maybe that's just my, like, because I always, like, 
if I loved something, I kept a hold of it for yeah. years yeah, yeah. and years. But everybody else in the world kind of like grabbed it, loved it, sure. left it. Yeah. And it's interesting. I think the last episode we talked about sort of the first legitimate rap albums, uh, Run DMC albums, where yeah. sure somebody might have thrown a single together and then maybe another single and a knockoff and put an album together just to resell those singles. Right. Uh, but it is interesting that what existed before that and then even obviously continues in rap now, 40, 50 years later, is disposable music, right? Yeah. So we'll do a Christmas song or we'll do a remix of an R&B record or a pop record or whatever. And then that has continued, you know, until today. It's kind of like videos are the are the single, like YouTube videos yeah. are the single or, or Spotify yeah. singles. But that's interesting what you were talking about with music <laughs> being disposable. It's like in a, in a in an odd sense but in a very different way because music was physical back then right yeah in a, in a sense it always has been disposable because if we can but if make you a go quick any record shop in the world it's like you know they have a bin full of rap singles for 50 cents right so yeah i mean maybe it's always been this way yeah um but it, you know when you think back to like classic rock that didn't feel that didn't feel disposable mm. you know and then you know, I didn't really freak with classic rock. I, I mean, you know, there's not a lot that I did. I like the Rolling Stones, but yeah. but just as far as like disposable, it, you still see old dudes rocking Pink Floyd for t-shirts sure. and stuff. No doubt. So you don't really see a bunch of like old heads rocking mm-hmm. Melly Mel t-shirts, right? Or, <laughs> you know, yeah, never seen that. Never, never not once. Never, never not once. What uh? Let's go back because I think this is sort of fascinating, and I'll I'll be able to share a story on this. Uh, similarities that you saw or experiences that you had, even coming up uh, between what would seem to be sort of contrasting subgroups, which is uh, rappers or hip hop and punk rock kids. What what similarities do you think exist between the two? Or in your experience, what seems you know oh what's similar between them yeah. just kind of like the rebellious attitude yeah and then the kind of uh take no prisoner attitude mm-hmm. where they're they're pretty you know um unapologetically themselves for sure and um you know that i think that a that a lot comes with that as far as personality um anybody that's really into their art is a character like mm-hmm. a cartoon character even huh. and and i think that you know punk rock and and hip-hop had the most vibrant characters in it talk about that why do you why do you feel that why do you sense that that anyone into their art it, is because they're more character. passionate about it mm. just because like they have something to hold on to and identify with um that they they make a part of their personality personality and if anything is more if they have any originality in them they have a way of expressing that in a way that you know is more interesting to me maybe not necessarily the rest of the world yeah are you saying the artists themselves will actually become a character that they'll take on some type of without a doubt huh. i mean that th- that and and even human beings in general yeah you, you're you're a product of influence whether you want to be or not do you feel like you've taken that on in your raps as far as a character yeah any yeah i mean a little bit yeah you know, I try to be as close to reality as I can, mm-hmm. but it, they, uh, there's certainly something that I feel like I have to adhere to. Mm. Um, Which is, I don't know. I, I feel like you know, there's always there's a level of of darkness to me when I when I make music, and I don't. I feel corny if I make like happy stuff. Yeah. Whereas like in my real life, you know, I, I'm I'm a pretty happy dude mm-hmm. usually. Mm-hmm. But I express myself, um, you know, the, the hard parts of my life are easier for me to write about huh. as opposed to the, the happy parts. Yeah. And that is interesting when you think about, you know, maybe the listener to the content that you create or the consumer of the content, your market, essentially, mm-hmm. right? Once you understand your market, and a lot of artists will like hate this kind of business talk, which would be interesting to talk about Lior Cohen, you know, inside B because he's such like a, a business type. Yeah. but. It's interesting to think about, like, okay, I'm having a good day, week, month, year. Yeah, yeah. What could I say? You know, would people still dig it if my art, and not not only you, but just anyone that sort of creates a lane for themselves, and then in some sense, like, they're bound by it, 
or they're obligated to it. Um, and it is difficult, you know. I can only imagine if you've sort of built something up over years and years and years of being yeah. something, uh, especially once there's money tied to it, uh, how difficult it would be to. Oh, yeah. Be like, I'm on something else. From it. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? It's, uh, I think that's the. Uh, but I think without progression is, is death. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. that's the only, the only natural thing. Speaking of which, I think that, um, that as far as character goes, when you when you think of like Rick Ra, uh, Rick Rubin and uh, Russell Simmons, how mm-hmm. they came up together, yeah, like it, it kind of talks about how Rick Rubin was the uh, very much like the the college student, where um, Russell Simmons was like the college professor. He uh-huh. would dress in like the the blazers with elbow pads sure. and stuff like that. Sure. But Rick Rubin was drug free, huh. and then Russell Simmons was yeah. like. You know, he did in that party success. scene, yeah, into yeah, the party scene. But had the mouthpiece, could talk, yeah, and all is where Rick Rubin was like, "Fuck establishment," right. and all this, which is fascinating. Even the juxtaposition between Rick Rubin and Russell Simmons, like they both essentially, and we were talking about this earlier tonight. They they both essentially arrived at the same point, right? Anti-establishment, anti-man, anti-big yeah. corporation. They were more similar than they were different. Yeah, but they got there from very different backgrounds, yeah. very different experiences. And I might be a little bit off. I think Russ was from the suburbs, wasn't he? You know what? I, I'm not... I forget. Queens. I mean, Hollis Queens, yeah. wasn't he? Yeah, I think that sounds right. Yeah. But then uh, Rick Rubin grew up wealthy. Rich. Yeah, his parents, he was Jewish. Yeah kind of funded his way mm-hmm. which i think you know that builds in a little bit of uh a asshole sure. into a person now you know just the, coming from wealth yeah well i mean not it's not the it's not it's not the rule but it's you know sure sure um I think you know you it, it kind of you you take one of two ways like you either you either live off your parents your whole life or you ex- excel at something mm. that you you know got your parents to invest in for you yeah which he did yeah I mean they funded his way and he kind of had like the the um, the clean wings to where he could fly whichever yeah. direction you wanted yeah. to do and he had support. And it was sort of one final, you know, like they had invested in him multiple times and then there was one final sort of investment. And if you don't get this to pop, then you got to go to law school. Yeah, but how real of a threat was that with how supportive his question. parents were? You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, do you think Rick Rubin would have been like, okay, and yeah. really ta- taken a law? Yeah, that's interesting. You know what I mean? Yeah. But at the same time, you know, it was out there that his parents were like, okay, we want you to try it. But sure. if you don't, it's law time. Yeah. Um, something that I dig about him. Oh, and I want to make a comment on the rap and the punk thing. Like, the first time that I ever really had any intelligent conversations about the similarities between hip-hop and punk culture, uh, I was living in Evansville, so it's probably 2010, and I was talking to Clint Vaught. Mm-hmm. Like, I had sort of built with Clint. Uh, and for those of y'all who don't know my man Clint, you know, he's sort of came up in, in punk rock and hardcore and straight edge, and he's a tattooer now and self-employed, independently thinking guy, uh, you know, very much feel like a kindred spirit with Clint, but he's from a different culture than I am anyway, so as we got to doing, like, shows together or bouncing around venues or whatever, you know, he was still touring at that point, I was still touring, uh, that was sort of like a light bulb moment for me to see the similarities um sort of the anti-establishment even though yourself culture yeah yeah and i was really like don't necessarily vibe you know still with the culture like i won't necessarily feel at home at a time i don't even know that i've i've probably gone out to a couple of the vaults shows at the Mm -hmm. hatch or whatever over the years but like i don't feel home at a punk right, rock right. show or a yeah. hardcore show, you know what I'm saying? I was saying? just thinking, you, you know, like, I always think it's just interesting. Yeah. And I think that it, I've always really liked, um, like, punk rock, hardcore dudes, like, mindsets. Yeah. It's like, I think that they're they're usually pretty level-headed people, and their music is just so aggressive. Yeah. And then afterwards, you talk to a pretty nice dude that, like, after sure. they're done, like, punching each other in the face and all. Bro can't do it and yeah well i mean it's weird it's like everything that you would think would happen in hip-hop but yeah. it happens in punk rock yeah. and um 
I did, it, I, it's just funny how nice everybody is huh. in that scene. And heavy metal dudes, too. It's like anybody that's ever at a heavy metal show is a, is a teddy bear that could rip your head off. Huh. You know? Yeah. I don't really know. You know, for, for guests uh, or, you know, folks who have been rocking with us uh, up to this point, we've talked about you being signed to Strange Famous. Is there... I've only been exposed to Sage and Strange Famous mm-hmm. through you. Is there any background in that scene with him? Um, yeah, he seems I mean, kinda... Sa- Sage was on a um, on Epitaph, okay, which is like a punk rock label, huh? So as it, a rapper, as a rapper, or... yeah, like they they were um, they were interested in him and ended up picking him up. Beca- mm. I, I want to say because of like um, the makeshift Patriot song, mm. but. Um, yeah, it was like it was like an all punk rock label, yeah. and um, but you know, like independent hip hop and and punk rock and and hardcore were all very very similar, especially yeah. in the early two thousands. That sure. was like the music to compete with. Yeah, like indie indie hip hop and and hardcore were like making more money than than major labels huh. in, in a lot of cases. Yeah, unless you were like Fifty Cent. Sure, but, sure. Yeah, that's a trip. And I think, you know, again, something that I uh, appreciate about uh, Rick Rubin, and really the more that I learn about him through this book, but it's something that I've appreciated not only about him, but I identified it in him as they talk about sort of his highbrow, lowbrow uh, approach to art or approach to creativity. Uh, It's art that appears, this is at page 132, it's art that appears aimed at the cheap seats, but also has appeal for the few people who truly see its complexity. Mm-hmm. And that's like, there's just a richness in that. You know, like even, at, you know, my daughter's 18 months old now. So even if you begin to watch like Pixar films, right? Like it's something yeah, yeah. that's aimed at children. But, but for the parents brown. who are listening, there's something in there for you as well. And that's a very sort of easy example of that same sort of approach to art. Uh, but that's something that is... But that's also genius marketing. It's because yeah, it's sure. like when you're, as a parent, you want to... You, you want to watch something that you can both be interested in. And if there's stuff for you to laugh at in there, then you're more apt to put on a Pixar movie than yeah. you are a uh, Door of the Explorer For sure. DVD. Um, any other examples that you can think of that, like aimed at the cheap seats, but also very highbrow? I mean, I think that's what a lot of like, I don't know, Dave Chappelle <coughs> reminds me of that. Dave Chappelle, Brilliant, like a lot of bro. like um, the old... Uh, like black and white silent films, huh. like all of the comedy stuff. Mm-hmm. Like there is some genius filmmaking in that, and stunt work, and sure. like just like uh, Buster. What, is it Buster Keaton? Yeah, I don't know. Or like, um, uh, what Charlie Chaplin? Yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's brilliant acting. Huh. That's the same sort of highbrow, lowbrow approach. Highbrow, lowbrow. It's fascinating. You watch those Dave Chappelle Netflix joints. Oh, it's they're brilliant. I think Dave Chappelle's like the king. Man. I do. You know, he talks about um And I didn't necessarily think that his his T V show was like the funniest thing. Man, ever. I, me and my dudes were caught up in that. I man. Love we it. rode that. I think wave. it's funny, but yeah. I don't think that like I don't think that's even the funniest sketch show ever. Sure. So this is funny. Probably five, ten years after his show got cancelled. And again, it's like me and all my dudes were in it. We would rock with it every week. Like we were in there. And then years and years and years pass. I get married. I'm hanging out with Aaron's family. Mm-hmm. Like my in-laws and her like, you know, very, white. Very white. White, <laughs> Southwest <laughs> Indiana, conservative. Like, and we were all at a getaway for a weekend or whatever. And like the Chappelle DVDs were at the cabin. I was like, oh, word. Yeah. <laughs> like, we've got to watch this. I was so gassed. I talked about it for hours while we were all kicking it. And then, like, the night settles in or whatever. And, like, you know, like, I think the sisters come in and, you know, brother-in-law and maybe father-in-law and the cool uncle. Yeah, yeah. And, like, we play the first episode. And it's, like, the one where they're test driving, like, the Kia or the uh scion or something and he leans over and like grabs her breast or something like that or like the girl's breast pops out while they're driving circles or whatever and it was like eight minutes into the first episode i've been talking about it for hours i was completely gassed on it yeah and it was just like (laughs) it was so awkward bro Uh. (laughs) because you know 
that highbrow, high lowbrow low was aimed at the cheap seats, and it's like that's probably what you know, sort of bait and switch you that's get a, in on easy stuff every, like that. That's every comedian, like every comedian, man. That was that, so every awkward. fart joke. You know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. That's the brilliance of comedy, for sure. Uh, one more quick comment that I want to make, uh, just about sort of the uh, aesthetic. In the early years of Def Jam, which I didn't know, which I thought was fascinating, uh, Rick Rubin created the logo for Def Jam. You know what's crazy to me? I didn't know that Rick Rubin owned Def Jam. I thought Russell Simmons owned Def Jam yeah. and that Rick Rubin was just a producer. But yeah, yeah. like how he, he created the... Because that he was into punk rock more than he was into hip-hop, but mm-hmm. then started getting more into hip-hop and, like, using the lingo. Yeah. Deaf. Yeah. Um, that, but people said that was fresh to death. Right. And he just spelled it like they... Like, so he kind of created that word. Yeah. Deaf. That's interesting. Yeah. And I didn't know this either until reading this, but the, you know, Deaf Jam, the ode to the DJ. Yeah. And maybe people were like, duh, but obviously the turntables in the record or in right, the right. logo, but that DJ, I didn't, I mean... Yo, R- Rick that Rubin, click for me. he made that in Estee Lauder because his aunt worked there and he went up in there and had access to the um, to the equipment, the tools to make the, make the font. It's, and it's in Helvecta font. Wow. Um, so at the, you know, sort of the end of the first paragraph of 136, other record companies made rap records for money, but Def Jam's name and packaging made a novel promise. It would be a label by and for hip-hop fans Uh, at this moment we're going to take a quick commercial break we'll be right back this episode of the read a book podcast is brought to you in part by river city mercantile and coffee co located at 223 main street in downtown evansville indiana river city provides a place for over 50 makers to showcase their high quality handmade goods and is home to an exceptional coffee and espresso bar get 20 percent off any gift card purchase when you use the code read a book in store or at rivercityevv.com shop local drink coffee river city so you know def jam starts at uh rick rubin's uh, college dorm and sort of in the new york city still relatively underground uh rap scene uh rick rubin bumps into uh russell simmons at a showing of graffiti rock party yeah Yeah. page 137 it was at the graffiti rock party that rick rubin and russell simmons finally crossed paths they had sort of heard each other um, or heard yeah. of each other. Before before Russell Simmons met Rick Rubin, um, he heard that song. What was that song called? It's it's yours. Mm. And um, Russell Simmons uh, was like so jazzed on it. Yeah, he he's like, like somebody's making music like how this I think is rap the blackest music should be rap yes. record ever. Yes, and he had no idea who made it. Yeah, and then. Um, he got in, introduced to uh, Rick Rubin, and they were like, "He made, he made that." And and uh, Russell Simmons is like, "You didn't make that." Yeah. And then he was like, "That's my most favorite song yeah, yeah, ever yeah. right now." He's like, "You are a beat making mother." <laughs> <laughs> Isn't that crazy? Oh man! Uh, at the bottom of 141, in the months since their first meeting, the college kid from Long Island and the hustler from Queens had formed a bond that would ultimately prove stronger than their musical connection. They made each other laugh. So the early days of Def Jam, I mean, from the sort of startup, they did it themselves, mm-hmm. made the logo, did the press, found the talent. They were sort of on the cutting edge of all the rappers in the scene. Yeah. I mean, it's a like it's a love story. It you know kind of is, yeah. And how it grows and develops and becomes. Uh, and then a very <laughs> short amount of time, they go from kind of a, you know, patched together thing uh, to having, uh, obviously because of Russ, having um, Run DMC, having LL Cool J, having the Beastie Boys, uh, being in cahoots with not only rap records, but uh, nationwide tours, uh, eventually film work. Um, and they really expand in a very short amount of time across a lot of different mediums. Yeah. Um, which is just, it's amazing. It is amazing. And, and one common theme that we sort of talked about that's on side A and side B, and we'll push to side B, but is the interracialness uh, of Def Jam, yeah. both from an ownership side to an artist side. 
musicians and DJs, producers. Um, it's a very diverse uh, company. Yeah. What were like Beastie Boys when they first came out? They were rocking like uh, tracksuits. Yes. Where they all dressed in the same tracksuit. Yes. And Russell, Russell Simmons is like, yo, don't do that. Yeah. It, because a lot of black people felt like they were mocking them, clowning them, clowning them. So they started dressing like in, you know, jeans and shirts, like Booger from Revenge of the Nerds. Which, which is, is f- w- this is funny to me. Mm hmm. Because if I see a white dude dressing like how he thinks that a black person yeah. would dress, I immediately do not take that person seriously. Right. Or like if a white person talks like how they think that a black person talks, mm-hmm. immediately they get no love from me. You know what I mean? It's just like, I think you're corny. Yeah. And every, I, I'm not going to speak for everyone, but <laughs> I bet that every black person would think they were corny yeah. as well. I don't know about you, but I definitely did that. I did too. So when did you make when did you make the switch? Yeah, or when sort I of stopped how? feeling like that I had to, to like prove myself as hip hop to mm. people. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like when I when I felt like I I didn't I didn't necessarily you know like I didn't have to dress like how I thought that I had to dress sure. or, or talk like how I thought that I had to talk to be accepted it was more like if i had the ideas of it then hey then that's that's all you really need yeah you know what i mean like it ain't anything else yeah and i I mean hip-hop comes with a lot of things sure and there's still you know visuals and stuff like that that i'm sure speak to us Mm -hmm. um that wouldn't be considerative of something yeah as a point of interest to people that look like you and me right i was talking to aaron about this today actually about like and I don't even think it was related to the text. We were on something else, but um, the spirit, I think, of sort of hardcore or punk rock uh, culture, like I've always, since I've been tapped into it, I've been inspired by it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so early on, you know, even kind of before Clint, I, at some point I picked up this idea that like that subgroup got tattooed heavily uh, with the idea that they were like job stoppers tattoos yeah, were job yeah. stoppers like st- face tattoos and yeah, neck, tattoos. neck tattoos and junk like that this tattoos um and so that would keep you know those folks out of having a job maybe uh, you know they're trying to flesh out their convictions or be so anti system yeah, corporation get, like, hardcore was very like no drugs yeah um they would get like drug free mm-hmm. tattooed mm-hmm. on them and like X's tattooed on yeah. top of their hands and stuff. But the point is, I was telling Aaron about that uh, sort of the speed. I've always been attracted to the spirit of well, that. Well, I mean, think about it, man. Like, think about like, you know, punk rock back in the day. Mm-hmm. They they had those studded jackets and mm-hmm. like they would. And that's just even the same rap. as that's like early those on battle. Rap. Yeah, those battle vests and stuff like that. Yeah. It was just like a way of representing like what the stuff that you love. Yeah, and that's but that whole style still in the very, 70s of like youth gangs and stuff like that, very, which is where rap was Very from. different and very the same. Uh, you know yeah. what I mean? There's yeah, a, that aesthetic. The aesthetic is very, yeah. And I think something that's, that's something that I'm learning more and more about is like you don't have to, you don't have to necessarily like take on the look yeah and this is kind of a big idea but, but the we spirit, love shoes the, for like sure we, for sure you no, know what I'm, I mean? that's not what i'm saying i'm saying like the spirit of something is so much more important than the representation absolutely of it. like i i do deeply want to be uh independent and i have a huge problem with a lot of like corporations mm-hmm. their mistreatment of people their mistreatment of economies their mistreatment of the planet uh so maybe in a sense i don't want to have a job quote right yeah um but i don't have to get a tattoo on my neck in order to do that sure. and i think that that's like a young but when i was young i thought more along those lines no doubt, you man. know what i'm saying i almost got tru tattooed on my stomach <laughs> Word. yeah dog that was out <laughs> true to the game true to the game I, I legitimately went to a tattoo artist when i was 16 man. years old and he refused to tattoo that on my stomach bless that man bless that man dude I did. Wow, that's true. Dog. But that's what I'm saying. You know, that's something that I that I appreciate is like 
you know, that, that sort of anti, be myself, own my ideas. Uh, and I think that that's, you know, an important concept now, like to, but to own the spirit. I just of think, yeah, what I'm saying is like when I, when I like see those white people that do that or talk like that, yeah. I think that that is racist. Hmm. I think that it's like, it's, it's an ignorance that they don't really realize is racism, but sure. it's just, it's ignorance. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's essentially like, frankly, it's blackface. Yeah. It's, it's, it's like, it's behaving, conducting yourself as a caricature that you um, think exists. Yeah. I was on that, bro. Like I had cornrows. We talked about this. Yes. You know what I, I'm saying? I mean, it, it, when you're young, it's, it, there's kind of an excuse for it especially yeah. like when you're when you're young and you fall in love with something right you think that you just you see and you try to mimic it and yeah. it's just ask cage ask cage man <laughs> like check out k old mm. cage videos yeah do you know who that is i know the name he's like an angry um, white guy yeah that man he's just if, for the people that know who cage is they will get that that mm. joke reference yeah, yeah. but He's changed yeah. quite a bit. That's fascinating, man. So, you know, full circle, the Beastie Boys were on that as well early on because they thought, hey, we have to project something. Uh, but with the wise advice and counsel uh, of Russell Simmons. Russell Simmons. Who better? For sure. Hey, bro, don't do not do that. <laughs> Be you. And that's that whole real recognize real, right? Straight like, up. Okay, so full circle, you know, uh, so the Beastie Boys got help and encouragement uh, to be themselves, even their aesthetic, to look like themselves, to just own who they are. Um, and that continued with this sort of black-white uh, marriage that existed at Def Jam. Uh, so Def Jam went out on tour, and instead of Rick Rubin uh, DJing for them, he sent a black DJ with them. Uh, and at 165, the Beastie Boys were now an interracial group on an interracial bill performing for a multiracial audience on a national tour. So that's that continuing who, theme. That, who was their DJ? I don't know who it was. Uh, Ruben nice. stayed behind to mix the Beastie Boys album, unable to fulfill his role on the road as DJ Double R. He sent original concepts, Andre, Dr. Dre, Brown, ah, and weird. Instead. So When did Mixmaster Mike join? I do not know. He's one of the best DJs to ever, ever do it. That's a good question. But again, you know, to your point, that that theme uh, that we talked about earlier that will continue on side B, which we're about to jump to, uh, of, a, of a record label, even in an America that's very racially divided, that is owned um, by white and black and, you know, and Jewish specifically uh, fellas, that has white and black talent, uh, that has white and black staff, which, you know, is, is compelling as we think about the racialization um, of America. At the end of uh, Side A, uh, it's fascinating that we get introduced to uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff mm -hmm. and Fresh Prince. Yeah. Uh, and again, Russell Simmons and uh, Rick Rubin disagreed on that. Russ hated them. Rick loved them because he thought it was highbrow and lowbrow. Yeah. Uh, and Russ was just like, they're corny. That kills my vibe. Don't kill my vibe. Right. Uh, so that's fascinating, even to think about the beginning of uh, Will Smith's media career. That caught me off guard. I didn't even think that that uh, Will Smith and, and Jazzy Jeff were uh, corny. So there we go. Uh, that's section A. Again, we're in uh, album three. We're going to move on to side B. Uh, side A was high. Side B is low. Um, and we get introduced to you know, basically the consequences of all of the success that Def Jam uh, has had in, in its early years. Yeah, sometimes success comes with uh, the realization that success is hard to maintain. Yeah, for sure. Uh, and before we move on to side B, let me pause for another quick commercial break. Hey, fellas, are your socks funky? I'm not talking about funky smelling, but funky looking. Your socks can be a conversation starter wherever you go, and Society Socks wants to be part of that conversation. Society Socks is a men's sock subscription company that sends two pairs of exclusively designed socks to your door each month. Socks made of a warm, soft, and comfortable combed cotton 
guaranteed to make you look well-dressed. But why are they called society socks? Great question. Socks are one of the most essential and least donated items at homeless shelters, and Society Socks aims to change that. With every pair of socks purchased, another pair is donated to a homeless shelter. Not only will your socks feel and look great, but you'll be making a positive change. Your subscription sends two surprise pair of socks to your door every month and two pair to a homeless shelter. For 50% off your first month subscription, use the code READABOOK at MySocietySocks.com. So you were saying it's hard to maintain success. Absolutely. Talk about that a little bit. Get personal <clears throat> or theorize on it. Which some out, Willis? Uh, I think that, you know, anytime that I've ever gotten some buzz, it's like I've always tried to, um, you know, I, I don't necessarily ever ride that wave. Mm. I, I take way too long in between projects i don't drop a song a month or anything like mm -hmm. that I, I take a lot of time between projects mm -hmm. um so maintaining that success is always having like some kind of output yeah it's fresh and new and right like every single you know mm -hmm. every single time mm -hmm. uh in a, in a really rapid rapid manner and yeah. def, def jam had to put out stuff like very quickly yeah they were killing disposable world yeah Bam, 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 bam. So side B starts, you know, low, talking about some of the lows that they were dealing with. Um, the Beastie Boys album, Licensed to Ill, uh, is, like, killing it. Selling multi-millions uh, of copies. But sort of immediately, there's the observation, I guess, to like, oh... And this is going to get us onto a whole rabbit trail, but like these guys are getting more success than anyone has ever in rap. Certainly more white. success, yeah, than anyone on on Def Jam. Uh, and it just so happens that those faces were white. There, at page one seventy two, as we begin side B. Um, and essentially, the idea is, and we've talked about this a little bit before in the past, but white success in black art—that's so, like a recurring yeah. constant theme i think in america you know on the previous book that i discussed um my co-host was jb a black rapper out of oklahoma city mm -hmm. uh, and he was saying just very similarly he was like look if if, if someone is going to blow out of okc it's probably going to be the white guy yeah uh, which is just a fascinating you know concept even dude as i just i just dealt with something like this and i always it. try to be really um you know tr try to be really mindful of it um but you know, we you were involved in this too, the mm -hmm. the year of hip hop. Yeah. <clears throat> um like a local news organization did like a little mini documentary for Evansville hip hop. Mm. And they They ain't come to my crib, you know what I'm saying? It must <laughs> not be popping like that. Well they, they filmed they filmed like an interview mm. at the Year of Hip Hop show. So huh. I'm thinking that it's about this. But they just ended up turning it into, like, the Cast One show. Mm. And I felt real awkward, and it made, like, people in the group feel like huh. I was getting more shine than huh. than I deserved. Yeah. And I, that didn't sit right with me. And that relates to the white thing because... Because they, they thought it was because I was white. Yeah. And I, I mean, like, I even got called out by, like, people in it, like, you're not even hip-hop. Mm. And I'm like... Yeah, and I want to like defend that, right? But at the same time, I want to be like mindful of sure. like why this young black man is saying yeah. that to this old ass white dude. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. So it's like I can't really go into it um, and explain why I am. If this dude that that you know says that he lives and breathes it, 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 it yeah. like I, I'm a guest in the culture. You know sure. what I mean? I'm not. I'm not like. Yeah. I don't open the door for people in that regard. Any, uh, you know, 30,000 foot observations on <clears throat> white success in black art. Why is that a thing? Why does that happen? Because it's easy, like people that are, that are uh, you know, giving views and buying stuff are more whiteheads than, mm -hmm. than, you know, all the people that go to show is just like predominantly white. Yeah. I don't know why that is. Yeah. I don't know. It's fascinating. There, page 173. Uh, I just think that this is an important and a powerful 
paragraph on Def Jam, even you know as they get into some of the lows that they're experiencing, uh, talking about the the tour that the um, Beastie Boys are out on with Run DMC. Uh, this was typical typical Def Jam, where the usual American tropes about race were turned upside down. The Beastie Boys were a white group with a black DJ managed by a black man and his white Israeli-American lieutenant. Their black-sounding hip-hop records were produced by a white man and promoted to white radio programmers by a black man. They owed their careers to the endorsement of a black rap supergroup, and the white MCs now crusaded for a new pro-black political rap crew whose black friend had just dissed the white rappers in print. The pro-black crew, Public Enemy, had been pursued doggedly by a white Jewish record entrepreneur over mild objections and indifference from his black partner. And Public Enemy was modeled by their black producer in part after a white punk band. Yeah. Just the layers to it. You know what I'm saying? Hey, you know what, though? Chuck D gave me props. Word? He did, on Twitter. Wow. Really shouted me out. It's crazy. Chuck D co-signs pretty tight to me. What did he say? Uh, well, I mean, <clears throat> they did a whole article on me on his on his website. Wow. And um, Chuck D was like, this, this is dope. Wow. And I was like... That's crazy. That was a big moment for me. Which is crazy to think that when he was like 26 years old getting pursued Dissing. by Rick Rubin, yeah, yeah. that he was like, bro, I'm too old for rap. I'm done with it. Right. Because he put out one single and it didn't, or one album maybe, one single, one album. It didn't do much. It was a single. And it didn't do what he anticipated. So when Rick came chasing him down, he was like, nah, bro, I'm too old. Yeah. 26. Andre 3K said rap is a young man's game. For sure. There's, there's truth to that. For sure. Now, there are two more things that stick out in my mind from side B. I mean, one thing that I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on is just all of the litigation that uh, Def Jam gets involved in with uh, their immediate company, their, who was a profile. Def Jam gets in all kinds of litigation with profile. Russell Simmons gets in his own litigation with them. Uh, Rick Rubin gets in his own litigation with them. Uh, the artists are in litigation with Def Jam, who's then back in litigation with Profile. It's a mess. There's all kinds of... Um, That's when hip-hop gets boring to me. Dude. When it becomes litigation, I'm just like... It is like, I mean, they can't put out albums, right. or they're getting called to put albums out so that they can you know, postpone having to give advance money, or I'm sorry, um, royalty money. I mean, it's just... Yeah, the business of hip-hop. Again, that's what we're talking about, right? Mm. And you sign contracts, you put your name on a dotted line, and if whatever company wants to push on it, they got you, bro. That's it. That's so it. much of uh, the low of side B is the, the litigation and the really sort of prominent successful years and the pushback uh, the Def Jam begins to get. But two sort of sub-points that I think are fascinating uh, is the change in rap maybe style uh or approach uh with artists like krs1 and rakim um and even public enemy you know public enemy juxtapositioning themselves to uh rakim being smooth and Mm -hmm. cool and uh public enemy was almost like like rap or like like rock almost yeah totally very like in your face loud yeah for sure um, so it's fascinating to see how rap continues to grow. You know, it's sort of early on it grew, it became, it developed, and then Run DMC was like quintessential rap. They sort of were the kings of rock, right? Mm-hmm. They did it for a season and an era. Uh, and then there was a fascinating comment about how artists like Public Enemy and Rakim and KRS-One were serious black men who had something to say. Juxtaposing. I think Big Daddy Kane was like the, the king of that era. Yeah, they didn't talk about him too much in this mm-hmm. section. Um, but yeah, I mean, on that note, you know, any rapper that I really dig, Royce Five Nine always talks about how dope Kane is. Uh, he doesn't get, Big Daddy Kane doesn't get. The props he deserves. For sure. I don't know. Any of the goats talk about yeah, him. I mean, Black but, Thought talks about yeah. him. Royce talks about him. Yeah. Who's the other one that, that all, everyone talks Is it Cool Is it Cool Modi? Cool Modi. Yeah, like Cool Modi never hit me, but yeah. Big Daddy Kane is like who who hit me. Yeah. Big Daddy Kane, Rakim, I really I Rakim, really so dope, still dope for sure. 
Actually, I never listened to his last album. What that was came it called? Out in like 2010 or something. Mm. But the uh, the R album that came in like yeah. 96. 18th letter? The 18th letter, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, that's R. That's what that means. Boom. So that was um, dope. So, you know, it has to be said that there's all kinds of litigation and cast one, like you said, sort of the boring business side of things, which is fascinating just to see, like, I don't know, man, how lines get crossed and how you can get into business with friends and it's love. And then you, you know, oh, try to build your business and grow and you get involved with other companies. And then it's like, forget that dude. And then you got Rick Rubin out on the West Coast working on movies and Russ back home working on albums. And yeah. they don't, you know, they put out LL Cool J's album and Rick doesn't even touch it. The second yeah. album, he doesn't know anything about it. So it's just, you know, crazy. But that's also kind of like timeless. I mean, that's so common. That just happens. That's, uh, yeah, that's um, forever. Which is which is fascinating. Uh, but to me, what, again, on the sort of the, the business of hip-hop, and you might talk to this a little bit, there's sort of this juxtaposition between uh, Rick Rubin and Lior Cohen. Uh, because Cohen is so, like, on his money. Yeah. on his business like yeah. whereas rick is very sort of i'm going to use my own money um to fund my own film right because i don't want to take a four million dollar advance from a big hollywood company because and then, then they're going to get say, a piece yeah. of the control and he didn't even want to give off a piece of the control so at some point it says he's bleeding tens of thousands of dollars every single day on this film and like not making progress what's the line between being a purist and being successful with your business what is the line there yeah i mean like like the sacrifice that you have to make for sure or is it worth giving up any bit of control not for me yeah i I don't i've never given control of that's not true i mean the the last album that i did there were a few things that like that i kind of disagreed with that that figure wanted to do that I wasn't necessarily about, like, and that, so I don't ever want to do that again. What's you know one what of those things? Like, as something like t-shirts. I hate, I shouldn't say I hate, because huh. I still may have something to sell. Yeah. I don't like that we used a logo on a mm. t-shirt. I wanted to do an art. Yeah. So I, I compromised on that. Mm-hmm. And the first shirt that we dropped, like, I'm not a big, humongous fan of. Sure. So that's something. Does that make you want to like, does, you know, maybe that experience with figure, other experiences you've had as an artist, like does working with other people make you want to not work with anyone? No. I mean, with Eric, it was, it was super easy. Eric just kind of lets me take the rein, And you know, working with figure was super easy too. Mm -hmm. It's just when I'm, I'm just very big into the aesthetic part of, a part of it as well. So like getting even a little bit of that control taken away yeah speaks to the egomaniac inside of me sure do you struggle with like do you think that you could be more or you know more i'm not necessarily saying i mean no i know what you're saying if you had a team of people yes. if you could say yo you do this you manage you <clears throat> do yeah. pr i, I don't I know i mean that's scary to think about too i yeah. mean because it, that takes you got 50 people saying what you are yeah and and none of you, where you get like a little piece of it saying it. So I don't know, man. Like I just, uh, it, it's, it would probably do me better to listen to somebody else. And I'm not saying that there's not a level of, to that because you're one of the people that I show music to. Sure. To where like you've been like, I know that if you're not hype on it immediately, yeah. then I won't be hype on it, you know, a month down the line. Sure. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And you're, you're. You need honest people around you at yeah. all times. Yeah, not yes, man. Yeah. You know, so again, the contrast between Lior Cohen and Rick uh, Rubin is fascinating to me here at page 184. To Cohen, Rubin was the one with the bad idea. Spending your own money to make a movie when you've never made one before, bad idea. Turning down somebody else's money to make one just because you want all of the control, bad idea. Worst of all, Rubin was proposing unconscionable splits on the movie deals with Run DMC and the Beastie Boys, one-third for him one-third for Russ, and then one-third for each of the groups. What made it worse, in Cohen's opinion, was that these kids were quite literally friends and family. So even as a guy who's like about his money, very business, you know, a lot of business acumen, 
uh, he just thought Rick Rubin was really messing up. Uh, and one story that what I do you to- think? You think he was messing up? I think that. <laughs> I think he wanted control. Yeah. Um, and I think it's okay to want control of your own thing. Mm-hmm. Like, literally, when it's yours, when it's me writing, when it's me talking, like, when it's Sean representing Sean, I think that that's okay to But want when you're control. making a movie that it represents other people. Bro, when I'm in business with somebody, I have, I have given up the exclusive right to have control. Word. And I can still own, you know, on this podcast, I can own my ideas and own my opinion, but when I invite you on... I don't control what's said anymore. You know what I'm saying? Word up. And a lot of people that like that exposure, you know what I'm saying? Like, oh shit, what's what's my listener gonna think? Or what's he gonna right. that Yo, exposure that, I mean, is not worthwhile to a lot of people, you know what I'm saying? Which is kind of you you kind of put yourself out there putting me on your podcast sure. to some of your listeners. Sure. I mean And to all the listeners. I appreciate you rocking with it. You know what I'm saying? But well, I mean, that's a real thing. Sure. I, the, the first week that the podcast ran, we I got in an argument with yeah. one of your listeners. Yeah. Not a real argument. Sure. But. but to me, that's life, man. Like, life is, you cannot control life. So our fabricated attempts to, like, wrestle it down, to me, that's just not real. So I'd rather be honest about myself and my convictions and my yeah. thoughts and my friends and my connections and all that. And, like, if people can't, rock with me or they need to draw a line in the sand like so be it hopefully they talk to me about it but if not you can't do nothing for those people Mm. you can't help them or change them or challenge them or sitting in an echo chamber you know what i'm saying that's what social media is nowadays for sure so anyway (laughs) uh page 185 leor cohen uh sort of sees that there's this incredible opportunity uh with run dmc Uh, They created a song entitled My Adidas. Uh, It's going to be the first single on their album, Raising Hell. And they were literally just giving props to, you know, the sneakers that they've been rocking. Uh, And so Lior Cohen, like, but they, and and that is also crazy to me. So, you know, the the, the business of hip hop, like, and there's definitely something in me, maybe, you know, and I don't know how much we've talked about this, but me even more than you, like, the business side of things, I love that. We've yeah. talked a hundred times, like, that there are ways that I think that I can get you paid for things. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, so I just, maybe that's how my mind works. Maybe that's personality, whatever. Uh, but Run DMC put that song together, and, like, they didn't think about capitalizing on it at all. But Cohen was like, Mm-mm. Yeah, for sure. So he, like, meets with the, like, you know, president of... Uh, Adidas in America, it's actually a German company. He meets with the president out in Los Angeles. Uh, they get into conversation. He brings them to a, he brings the, and again, this page 185, sort of second and third paragraph. Uh, Cohen brings him to a show uh, to where Run DMC is playing that song. And they say, hey, hold up your Adidas. And like 30,000 people in the crowd hold up their Adidas. And the president of Adidas cries in that moment you know what i'm saying he's like this is amazing and so the president takes leor cohen back to the owners in germany and long story short uh the ceo gave him what he was asking for something run dmc had already earned a one million dollar endorsement deal from adidas they, and they did earn that for sure every penny of for that. sure and that's the first of its kind for a rap group which would eventually grow to include their own branded line of adidas but like a lot of times it's just ill to me that like people who are about quote business or trying to like get money back for their art or for their contribution or for their own independent thing or whatever like they're perceived as what how are they perceived uh, kind of like snakes yeah snakes or greedy or grimy or jewish jewish <laughs> Leo Cohen is jewish uh but like, why is that? You know what I'm saying? Like, I think, I think just with money, people, you know, I don't know. I think people automatically think that people that have a lot of money are greedy or get a lot of money from something that, sure. that I don't know. I don't know. 
Cut that part out. Nah, bro. That's what it is. What is it? What did I say? I, think I didn't pe- feel like I really made a point there. I just think people... I think there are ideas that we hold that we don't really think about. And when we need to like explain them, we're like, I don't, I don't really know. I think what you're saying is like there's a general notion that people who think about money or talk about money or have money are greedy, are greedy or somehow like bad or wrong. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? But the thing is, like money is good or bad. It's like all of our favorite thing. Mm. One of my favorite things. Yeah. I feel more comfortable when I have it. For sure. I feel less comfortable when I don't. Yeah. I'm willing to prostitute my time for it. Yeah, bro. Selling, selling hours. Bro, that's what I'm saying. And so, you know, something I think that is appealing to me about a story like that is like Cohen, obviously, like, he's in an argument with one of the owners of the label. Mm-hmm. That's fine. He doesn't allow that to steal the opportunity. Still makes to the, do business. Yeah, yeah. He goes out, takes the initiative, sees the opportunity, like puts in a lot of investment. He doesn't know if the people at Adidas are going to respond to this deal. And his tenacity, his vision, his but foresight, I mean, it's kind of a surefire thing when you got you know thirty thousand sure, fans holding. That's up. the first deal of its kind, though. No doubt. You know no what I'm doubt. saying? Like, but I mean, it just makes sense. Yeah. That, I mean, it's hard to say otherwise. You know what I'm saying? Like, totally. Adidas can't come in there, see that happening, and then leave and be like, we don't owe them anything. When he, when, you or know, if it's not, you know, this is not a valuable partnership, which obviously it is because these guys are selling their merchandise. Exactly. All day long. Absolutely. But what I'm saying is that I admire someone, and this is a change in me as I get older. Like, I used to just throw a Leor Cohen to the to the side you know what i'm saying like that now you're your nasty it. dog yeah like and we you know maybe one day this will you know come to fruition but like we've talked about you having a podcast and me having like a business side or like helping to manage that podcast yeah i would love to do that i would love to like chase money down obviously for myself but also i would love to earn you money and support right, an idea right. that you have but even yeah, we've had some like friction there. on that you thrive in that world. I, 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 I don't despise that world. That yeah. world is boring to me. Mm. It, or, or like rejection. Yeah. You, you, like rejection doesn't bother you. Yeah. Rejection like bothers me. It mm. feels like it cheapens me. Sure. But that's not real. Yeah. I just think that I, maybe I have more of an ego than you. Yeah. Have. At one point, the uh, CEO at Profile was in a, you know, in a, in a court battle, legislator legislation, what's the word? Litigation. Litigation uh, between Def Jam artists and Profile, and he says, "I find talent and I make it valuable," and that's just like an amazing, sort of an audacious statement. But there is something true in that. Like people who are artists or people who are creative tend to either just be creative, yeah, or but you're creative, totally. <laughs> Totally. <laughs> totally. But I think like I I think that it's something like I want to be able to own the spirit of my creativity and not necessarily like the product of it. Yeah. Yes, I'm creative. So I want to be able to stay creative for the rest of my life. I want us to be able to stay creative with how I use my time. I want to stay creative with how I can generate money. I want to stay creative about ideas that I have or you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like and so because of that like in the world that we live in, I have to have money. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So that's even a conversation that, you know, me and you have talked a lot about and Aaron, my wife and I are talking a lot about. It's like, do I do that thing? Do I do the do I trade my hours for dollars or do I get very creative about how I try to generate income yeah. for us? Um, so that I in the spirit of it that I can remain creative over my time, over my life, with what I give myself to, like doing all that independent stuff, like, you know, Lord willing, managing your podcast, that junk takes time. You know what I'm saying? Like, if you don't have time, then you can't pursue things that are creative, whether it's some writing that I want to do or an album that I want to work on, a podcast idea that I have, like that stuff takes time. Um, And time is valuable. For sure. Is that where we wrap it? Yeah, we can wrap it up there. 
Uh, again, you are rocking with Sean Little. This is my co-host, Cass One. Hey. Uh, we're reading Dan Charnis's The Big Payback, The History of the Business of Hip Hop. And hopefully in the next seven days, you'll have the next episode on album four. We'll be we're going to push this we'll thing better. to a conclusion. Yeah. We'll be better about it. My basement got flooded. Yeah, man. Work. Went to Chicago. Had some shows. Life. Yeah. You went to Atlanta. Rap life. Went down to Atlanta. Bam, bam, bam. Just back to back to back. Yeah. So thanks for rocking with us. Read a book podcast. We look forward to reading with y'all. Peace. Mwah.